Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. You know, a lot of times when somebody uh, comes to our house or when we visit somebody at their house, as our evening is wrapping up or the day is wrapping up, I'll say or one of us will say, hey, let's have a quick time of prayer before we leave. Or maybe if you are on a phone call with a friend and it's a, it's a heartfelt phone call, or maybe if you're texting with a friend and if you can have a heartfelt texting interchange, which I doubt, uh, one of the last things that you'll say is, um, well, I'm praying for you. You know, we didn't make this up. This is very, very, very ancient. All of the ancient letters in the New Testament have somewhere in the last paragraph of them, either a prayer or references to prayer or something like that, and James is no exception. Here in his final paragraphs, he talks more than he talks in anywhere else in the letter about prayer. James 5, verses 13, and we'll read down through verse 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So here in verse 13, it's about all of us, anybody in any situation can pray. And then in verses 14 and 15, he gives this very unique and special circumstance where a person who is weak calls for the elders of the church to come and pray for her or to pray for him. And then in verse 16, we're back in everybody praying for each other and confessing our sins to each other. And then in verses 17 and 18, he gives this dynamic example of prayer out of the life of Elijah. But our passage today, verses 13 through 15, is uh, any, if, if you got a Bible study book about how to study James or a commentary that explained James, they all say that verses 13 through 15 are the most difficult verses in the epistle to understand. And they're really significant verses because like for the Roman Catholic Church, for the Roman Catholic Church, they take these verses to do the uh, sacrament of extreme unction. And speaking from the biblical conviction of this congregation, we would have a disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church, A, over what a sacrament is and isn't, and then B, also over this whole idea of extreme unction. But churches that aren't Catholic, but rather that are Protestant, but maybe are Pentecostal or a little more charismatic than we are, would take a verse, these verses and say something like, there is a guarantee that if you have enough faith, or if you get an anointed person with enough faith to pray for you, there's a guarantee that you'll be healed. And I don't think that's what it's teaching either. So this text demands an attentive interpretation 
But watch, we, don't, we do have to have an, an attentive interpretation and a correct interpretation, but we don't want our interpretation to be correct just so that it could be correct. It demands a correct interpretation so that we can have an obedient and a heartfelt and a life-giving application so that we can hear what God is really saying in this text so that we can believe and live the way he's calling us to. So this morning's outline is nothing clever. You will hear me go phrase by phrase by phrase through this entire passage. So the first phrase that we'll tackle is there in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So the first phrase to tackle is anyone suffering or cheerful. Anyone suffering or cheerful. Verse 13 says, there is no time in which God doesn't invite us to himself. Church, don't miss what awesome news that is. You, there is no time when God doesn't invite you to crawl up into his lap and talk to him. The emphasis of verse 13 is not about our prayers and how powerful they are. The emphasis of verse 13 is not even about how our life is really good sometimes and our life is really bad sometimes. The emphasis of verse 13, the way that I interpret it, the emphasis of verse 13 is this. God, our God, the living God, is always there for us and is always welcoming us to talk to him. In every situation, God is the primary person to be addressed. In every situation of great blessing and great sorrow, God is the primary providential arranger to whom we should direct all of our thoughts and our words. God invites us to talk to him all the time. I think there are some kids here, and I'm glad that the kids are here. We give the poor nursery workers like one Sunday a, a year off, and so today's that family service where we ask the kids to come, and kids, verse 13 says that the next time something, the Bible says here, the next time something really great happens, like you get three scoops of ice cream, or you get to go swimming, something great happens. God says he wants you to talk to him about that great thing and how happy that it makes you. And you know, kids, this verse also says that when something really sad happens, like you heard your grandma has to go in the hospital or even if like you heard your grandpa died, if something really sad happens, God wants you to talk to him about it because he knows how to wipe your tears away and he knows how to help you. Church, verse 13 says that when times are great and we lift up and sip that sweet cup of blessing, we can say, oh God, you gave me this. How I thank you for it. It's a gift from you. And beloved church, this says that when we have to lift up the cup and drain the dregs of sorrow and bitterness, we can say, God, this tastes awful and I don't like going through it, but God, I know that you are good and that you have not abandoned me. And we can talk to him. Verse 13 says that as believers in Jesus Christ, we can hallow every pleasure 
and we can sanctify every pain. Is anyone suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Let him pray. Next phrase to go through is verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. So the phrase would be, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders. First, we have to figure out what does this mean? Is anyone among you sick? The Greek word there for sickness, astheneo, the most literal translation would be weak. And actually, this is where we have an interpretive decision to make because several times in the New Testament, this word is used not to talk about physical sickness like having cancer or epilepsy or a broken arm, but this is used to talk about uh, in 1 Corinthians 8, it is used of having a weak or a malformed conscience. In Romans 14, this word is translated to mean weak in faith, struggling to believe the promises of the gospel. And yet also, in uh, over a dozen places in the New Testament, this verse is translated as physical sickness, and that is the meaning of this word. So we have to decide, what does it mean? Well, maybe we have a little bit of help because didn't you notice verses 15 and 16 both talk about sins. If he's committed sins, if he has sinned, they'll be forgiven. So then we could say, well, maybe this is a whole other thing. Maybe this Maybe it means physical sickness, but it's like a physical sickness that's a consequence of a spiritual sin. If, if we deal with some of this again next week, I'm, I'm thinking about next week kind of unwrapping uh, uh, the, the six main things the Bible says about sickness and suffering and where it comes from and why. I don't want to get into all of it today, but it's possible that this is a physical sickness that's the result of a spiritual sin, though it's hard to draw that line for us, almost impossible for us to draw that line authoritatively. So it could mean bodily illness. It could mean spiritual weakness. It probably applies to both, to both. And then it says, if you're weak like this, spiritually weak or physically sick, you can call for the elders of the church. Notice they're called the elders of the church. They're not just uh, like roaming elders. They belong to a flock. The flock ordains them as elders and they have a covenant relationship with the flock. This church has elders. Racine Bible Church has elders because that's the New Testament pattern. Acts 14 verse 32 says that when they planted churches, in every church they ordained elders to shepherd that church. Our current elder board is the pastoral staff, and then another uh, five or six or seven men. So our current elder board is the pastoral staff, which means me, Wayne Bielgard, Dan Miller, Brennan Uthi, and Darren Bowers. And then we have one who kind of wears two hats because John Anderson has an office in our pastoral office, but technically he's not paid by the church. So, and then we have the the elders who aren't paid by the church, who aren't on full-time pastoral staff, and that would be Steve Miller, Chuck Kuyper, Guy Ladd, Jeremy Dulac, Jose Torres, and then one of our elders just went to be with the Lord Jesus. He just heard Jesus say, well done, and we miss Ed Plogman already. Um, this text says that when someone is weak like this, they can call for the elders of the church to pray for them. So right away, I hope you see, this is not some like weird healing service where we play a lot of music and we pressure you to come forward. This happens in somebody's house. 
And if there are 800 people in the church, the only people that know this is happening is the one person who called the elders and the eight elders that go there. The other 793 people don't even know this is happening. It's not some spectacular thing. The elders come to them and they pray for them. So continuing to go through phrase by phrase, it says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So this phrase is let them pray over him, anointing him with oil. So the first thing it says is that the elders go to their house and pray for them. Now, our elders meet on Sunday afternoons and we pray during our elders meetings. And it is the case that we have prayed for many of you by name in our elders meetings. This text says, like, that's not good enough. In this situation, we can't stay at the church and pray for you, even though God hears it all and it beams all around and everything. This says we have to go there. Well, why do we have to go there? I hope to show you from this verse that this is like reason number 37 that virtual church is not church. If you can't be there and you have to make a phone call, a phone call is better than nothing. But it is not better than being there. If you can't make it to church, I suppose listening to my sermon on a phone or an iPad is better than not hearing it. But it's not being there. This says that the elders have to go to them, bring the oil, touch them, and be with them to pray for them. Why would the elders have to actually be there? Well, don't, don't over, like, over-sanctify and over-theologize this. You know why they have to be there. The same reason that when you love somebody and they're coming home, you try to be there when they get home. Because when we love each other, we try to be there with each other to embrace God gave us these bodies to be in proximity with each other. And I'll tell you this, when I, speaking as an elder who has prayed for sick people, who's gone to the hospital to pray for them, who's gone to their home to pray for them, I've prayed for people and when I touched them, I could feel the fever. And I'm telling you, my, I would not have prayed for them the same way if these fingers didn't feel that heat. Oh, I would have prayed for them and I would have meant it if I was here in my office. But there is something about going there that makes the difference. There are multiple times, not in, I'm not talking multiple times over my lifetime, but I'm talking multiple times like this year. The year's only halfway over. But there are multiple times this year when I've been in a meeting with our elders and, uh, Chuck Kuyper has done it. Uh, Wayne has done it. I've been in a meeting with our elders and we're praying. And because of the way that Chuck prays, my prayers immediately move from false to true. When you are around someone who is strong in faith, you just draft on their faith and it helps you so much. And the elders have to be there. They have to be there together and they have to be praying. Now, why does the person who's in the sickbed need them to be there? Well, obviously, because they're too weak to go to church, but maybe there's another reason too. And that's because if they are weak, and that's what this word is, they are weak. And if their faith is weak, well, it's one thing to have weak faith and then to read a story about how Elijah had strong faith. 
But it is another thing entirely to be weak in faith and to have eight men who are strong in faith surround you and put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you in the name of Jesus. Even if you struggle to believe, you do not struggle to believe that they believe. And perhaps their belief can pull yours along. Of course we have to be there in person. Virtual church is not church. You got to be there. You got to be together. And this leads us to the freaky thing that everybody always asks about. What is the oil? What is the oil? And why do they have to use oil? I think it was olive oil. I think it's likely that there may have been other additives to it, other fragrances or different oils added to it, but I think the base of it was olive oil. And we know from Luke chapter 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when the, when the traveler gets beat up, it says that to tend to his wounds, they rubbed oil into his wounds. So perhaps it was some sort of medicinal or um, some sort of pain relief. We know from Psalm 23 that the psalmist says in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. That oil is symbolic of the blessing of the Lord. So I just think of the oil as not that different than the bread and the cup. It is a physical symbol of the blessing of the Lord. And when the elders show up, and they don't do this virtually, they show up, they actually have something in their hands, and they actually touch you with it. That's what the oil is. Don't make it more creepy or weird than that. Now, as we go through phrase by phrase, then look what else it says. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So the next two phrases I'd like to show you are the last phrase in 14 and the first phrase in verse 15. And I would call these two conditions of the prayer, in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith. This prayer has two conditions to it. It's in the name of the Lord and it's the prayer of faith. And look what it says exactly, because this will throw you for a loop if you don't, I mean, it should throw you for a good loop. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. James is going to use the word healing down in verse 16. If he has committed sins, they will, they, they, uh, be, if he confesses his sins, he'll be healed. He doesn't, this is very fascinating to me that in verse 15, he says that the person will be saved. He doesn't say that they'll be healed. So this phrase may not even be referring in verse 15 to physical healing at all. I think it's more referring to a spiritual restoration of their faith in God and their trust in God's providence. But notice the two conditions. It's prayer in the name of the Lord and it's the prayer of faith. The name of the Lord is the same phrase as is used in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets were the prophets because they did not speak in their own name. They spoke in the name of the Lord. The elders of the church minister to the weary one not in their own name, but in the name of the Lord. They pray in the name of the Lord. So that means that we're depending on God, and it also means that we're depending on the will of God. When it says the prayer of faith will save the one who is weak, 
We need to interpret that carefully. And then the other condition is in the, the, and the prayer of faith. And if, uh, if the translation was really a little more accurate, this is how it would be translated, verse 15, and the prayer of the faith. Faith is, uh, also has the definite article, the. It's the prayer of the faith. And I think that's important. He's not talking about faith subjectively and generally. He's talking about particularly the faith. When it's the prayer of the faith, the fact that, the, that faith bears the article makes me believe that what James is referring to is the faith which is once for all delivered to the saints. That is faith in God, in Jesus Christ, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, in the gospel. The meaning is the faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and faith that Jesus Christ loves and that Jesus Christ can answer. The reason this interpretation is important is because, I'm, I'll, to be very clear with you, there's a different interpretation that I reject. This interpretation is, for instance, is held by George Mueller, who's a, who's a historical hero of mine. I love his writing on prayer, but the way he takes this text, I differ from him, both exegetically and pastorally. That the alternate interpretation is that this means that the prayer of faith is, a, is an especially powerful prayer. Like while you're praying, you have this sense of assurance, not just that God could, but that God directly will. It's like this, this special sense of assurance that God's gonna heal this person in this situation because we're praying right now. And I just think that's a bit much. I think it stretches the exegetical language of the passage. And I also think that it's, that would mean that James is trying to get us to chase an impression or a feeling. And I just don't think any of the apostles are ever getting us to chase that in their writings. What they want us to chase is God and faith in God. God has promised that no matter what happens, if you are in Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will be raised up. God has not promised that you will be healed every time you're sick. That's not a promise we can claim, not properly, not with any exegetical warrant. There's no promise that if you have enough faith, every time you're sick, you'll get better. But there is a promise that if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, even if your sickness were to take your physical life, you will be saved and you will be raised up because death has been defeated by Jesus in the gospel. Interpreting this as some sort of special measure of faith for a miracle healing is not only, I think, unwarranted by interpretation, but I do believe it's also pastorally very dangerous because it leads into all sorts of pressure like, well, are you telling me that she would have been healed if the elders who gathered to pray for her had been better elders? Well, I believe our guys are like the best there are. But I'm telling you, I've been with our elders and we prayed for people to be healed and those people died. So apparently you need better elders than we have. Like it, it just doesn't always work that way. You have the multiple times in Paul's ministry where he leaves Trophimus sick. You know, even in his own life in 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul filled with the spirit prays that the thorn would be taken away, God says, no, I'm not gonna take it away. There's not a promise that these things will be taken away if we have enough faith. That's not what this is getting at. What this is getting at is that we place our faith in God. 
And that's why I think he says, saved in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. That is, if, if you're a covenant member of Racine Bible Church, you know, that, 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 that church membership matters in the sense that when you become a member of the church, you share your testimony with the elders and they affirm that you are in Christ and that you're in, you know, the, the, if you're a covenant member of Racine Bible Church and we affirm your faith in Jesus Christ and you are weak, in faith or weak physically, and you ask us to come pray for you, and we are praying that God will be near to you and that God will restore your faith and that God will raise you up, we can know that God will answer that prayer. Either you'll be raised up from your sick bed to serve him again with us, or your faith will raise you up and Christ will raise you up inevitably and perfectly beyond this life. So he says that it'll save the one who is sick. We can't always be sure that we're going to be healed when we're sick. I think, don't you, don't you, you know these verses, even if you, you haven't memorized them, you'll recognize them when I read them. One of them is John 14, verse 13. The verses that are like, you can get whatever you want when you pray. <laughs> John 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There are lots of verses like this. Another one is 1 John 5, verse 14. 1 John 5, 14 says, if we ask anything, comma, according to his will, comma, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have what we ask of him. We can't interpret those verses as if they mean anytime we're in a bad situation and we wish things were better, if we pray about it in the name of Jesus, our wishes will be granted. The thing to remember is that when we pray in the name of Jesus, when we pray according to the will of God, we are praying to God. Of course, when we pray, we pray, God, we want healing. God, we want the cancer to go away because that's what we want. And we bring our petitions and our requests to God. But when we pray, we bring our petitions and requests to God. So church, if you want to apply this properly, let me just warn you, you dare not do Two things when you pray. First, when you pray in the name of Jesus and you pray to God, you, you must never come to God believing that he is too weak or too uninterested to help you. You must never pray in the name of Jesus to God Almighty and believe that he is too weak or too uninterested to help you. There's a second thing you must never do when you pray. And when you pray and you bring your requests to God, you must never bring your requests to God as if now you know better than God and you're instructing God what to do because God has to rearrange the universe according to your wishes. That's not prayer. Prayer is humbly bringing our requests to God, but the emphasis is to God. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Nevertheless, God, I, I know, I, I, and I could plead with you 10 reasons why I want the cancer to be gone and I want him to get up from that sick bed, but I will go down swinging, believing two things. One, Jesus Christ is sovereign over every cancer cell. And two, he doesn't heal everybody down here. Why? Because he's Jesus Christ, and I, and I can't answer why he does everything that he does, but I know that he's good. And I know this, anyone who in Christ 
gets taken out by a little bit of cancer will not go an instant without being saved and raised up and healed in the arms of Jesus Christ. He's good and we can trust him. We don't command him with some special measure of faith like we have to tell him what to do. That's not what this is getting at and you ought to be careful of those who misinterpret it in such a way. But as we go through this phrase by phrase, it says the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And then it says if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Like I said, I might talk a little bit next week about sin and sickness and how they are and aren't related. But if I could give a gospel word here, it says here that if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The gospel word is everybody fears sickness and death. I was with some unbelievers last week. We we're talking about someone getting sick and possibly dying. And everybody at the table, the believers and unbelievers, hate sickness and death. But I tell you, the, the, the dividing line between being a believer and an unbeliever, one of those dividing lines is this. If you're a believer, you fear sin far more than you fear sickness and death. And I ain't never met a, an unbeliever who fears sin more than they fear sickness and death. And I never will. But I'm never gonna meet a spirit-filled believer who's walking with Jesus who fears sickness and death more than he or she fears sin. Because don't you know? Don't you know what Jesus said to us over and over? Huh. They take out your body, they take out your body. Sickness, if Caesar and his minions or if cancer cells and their reproduction and, you know, if that takes out your body, that takes out your body. But the only thing that matters is if body and soul are eternally destroyed in hell by the just wrath of God because you died with your sins unforgiven. And this verse, this verse says, there is a way for you to be certain that your sins are forgiven. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. And church, if you are here and you believe that gospel, the only reason that you're here one day a week and out there six days a week is because you get six days a week to tell everybody out there who is afraid of sickness and death but who is not afraid of sin that they've got the whole thing upside down and they need Jesus. They need their eyes open to the fact that viruses and vaccines and everything else under the sun is just a whole lot of noise if your sin has not been taken away by the Savior. Oh, but your sin can be taken away by Jesus. Just like that. That's a gospel word, but to interpret what he means here when he says that if you've committed sins, you'll be forgiven. So here's the way that I would take this verse. Like I said, you could say, well, they got sick because God's judgment of their sin. I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. To me, it sounds more like this. When you are sick, I mean, when you are really sick, here's what happens. When you are really sick, the distractions and the diversions, they all fade away. And when you are really sick, what you end up doing is lying in bed with yourself and you start to reflect if I die am I even ready to go 
And then maybe you start to reflect, I'm so weak right now, I can't do anything. But if I am healed and I get out of this bed, don't you think I ought to do some things different than I was before? There is nothing like sickness and affliction to cause us to examine ourselves, to bring our whole conscience before God and to get us to confess our sins, right? Right? This is why there's, this verse shows up so many times in the Psalms. And it would almost, the verse would almost make you giggle a little bit because it sounds so goofy. But over and over in the Psalms, we have this verse. Is, isn't this exactly what it means? This is the verse. How good it was for me that I was sorely afflicted. What? How good it was for me that I was sorely afflicted. That's what this is talking about. When you are so weak that you can't get out of bed, Maybe you will finally start to reflect, why did I waste so much time when I wasn't weak? Why did I spend all my time and money on entertainment and chasing things that are going to pass away when Jesus returns and I didn't invest anything in the gospel and souls in eternity? And if affliction and weakness causes you to wake up like that, that is the best thing that could happen to you. I think that's what he's getting at when he talks about confessing your sin during a time of weakness and even of physical sickness. And don't miss this in the text, verse 15. Don't miss in the text. The elders, we talked about them in verse 14. The oil, everybody wants to know what the oil is in verse 14. We talked about that. When it says in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. That oil we talked about, it is not repeated in verse 15. Those elders we talked about is not repeated in verse 15. What it says in verse 15 is, the Lord will raise him up. And you know that's the only way to take this text. If, I, if, I, if you're ever sick and I come pray for you, I put a little oil on your forehead, you have missed everything. If after I'm gone and something good happens, you're like, wow, that oil was something else. Or, oh my, Spencer's thumb that put that oil, oh my, was that, no, 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 no. Forget me, forget the symbolic oil. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who raised you up. He's the one who receives all the glory. He's the one who saves us by, by, by giving his own body for us. He's the only one that matters. He heals, he saves. When he does not heal, he still raises up instantaneously on the other side of the grave. He's the one that does it all. Which brings us all back to verse 13. There is no time, believer. There is no time, little child in your life when God isn't ready to hear from you. When the best things happen and you ask for something and you get it is when you give thanks to God because he's the one that did it. And when the worst things happened and you even said, God, could you heal my grandma and he doesn't heal her in this life and she's taken away, that's the time when you can talk to God and say, God, I am so sad. But Jesus, I know that you know what it's like to cry tears. You know what that feels like, and I know you can help me. There's never a time when you can't lift your whole heart, your whole soul up to God. Church, in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, there is no believer who has to have any fear that God will fail to raise them up. And there is no believer who needs to have any fear that God will save them. 
because Jesus Christ's tomb is empty and you will be saved and you will be raised up if you have placed your faith in him. And so as a church, we believe that together. I think, I think, I think one of the best things about you all is how you pray for each other and how you communicate that love to each other on a certain level through bringing chicken and casseroles and that's okay. But on another level, by praying for each other, by embracing each other, by weeping for each other, by showing up for each other. This is how we love one another. This is how the love of Jesus radiates out of us into the lives of others. It's why we need each other. It's why we need to be here and not just on a screen. And it's why our faith and hope and love in the Lord Jesus Christ pulls us all together. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as you have spoken to us in your word, just about phrase by phrase, we were able to go through these three verses that your Holy Spirit gave to James to give to us. And I would ask now that as you have spoken in your word, that your church would hear. Whatever we walk out of here doing, whatever we walk out of here praying and investing in, oh, Spirit of God, don't let it be just according to our own opinion and our own feeling and our own anything. Oh, let it be because we have listened to your voice in your word. And as we receive your holy word, oh, build us up to believe it, to confess it together, to obey it together and to know Jesus more and more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.